0: Do you have a serious long-term health condition? Then make sure you double your defences this winter with the COVID-19 and flu vaccines. Extra protection is critical, as flu and COVID-19 can make you seriously ill. It's safe to have both vaccines at the same time, so don't delay. Do it now. Double your defences. Get vaccinated. Get protected. Go to nhs.uk to find out more.
1: This is our People podcast telling the stories behind South Tyneside and Sunderland NHS Foundation Trust.
0: Welcome to this episode of Our People Podcast. My name is Fiona Thompson and I'm a Communications Officer with The Trust. Uh, I'm really pleased to uh, be here today with Professor Colin Reese and Ingrid Emerson uh, because this week marks Rector cancer month um, and that's all the way through March. Um, bowel cancer claims the lives of 16,000 people in the UK each year and it's the second biggest killer following lung cancer. Um, thank you for joining us, Professor Rees and Ingrid. Um, would you mind starting us off by introducing yourself, Professor Rees?
1: So yeah, my name's Colin Rees. I've um, been a consultant at South Tyneside and Sunderland uh, Foundation Trust uh, since 1998. Um, I'm currently employed by Newcastle University. I actually moved to being employed by the university about four years ago. Um, so I do my research work at Newcastle University, I do my clinical work, and we recruit a lot of our clinical patients from South Tyneside. So over the last decade or so, our trust really has established itself as one of the leaders in the world for research in colorectal cancer, particularly the early diagnosis part of it, prevention of it and screening for it. Um, So it's really good to be part of this podcast today and tell people a little bit more about bowel cancer um, and about the research that we're doing. I should just say that, that bowel cancer and colorectal cancer, I may use those words interchangeably. Colorectal cancer is the technical term, but bowel cancer is the, the, the term that lots of people use.
0: And how does your job work in between both organisations?
1: So I, um, I spend the majority of my time at the university and I do uh, endoscopy, so that's telescope examinations of the, the bowel at South Tyneside and I do clinical research at South Tyneside.
0: Ingrid, would you like to tell us a little bit about your job and how you became a research nurse?
2: So my name is Ingrid Emerson and I work as the delivery lead for the Coral Speed project. The Coral Speed project and um, was developed about um, four years ago now. And Coral Speed stands for the Coral part of it is, is colorectal. and the Speed part is for screening prevention and endoscopy and early diagnosis of bowel cancer. So it's basically Based around bowel cancer, so I started work as a nurse in January nineteen ninety five, and I did train at Newcastle. And my first role was in theatres. I used to work in theatres there, and it was just basically a conversation with one of the surgeons during a coffee break. <laughs> as you do. And he mentioned that he had a prostate cancer study and he was looking for somebody to support that, like a clinical nurse to support that particular study. Um, that was in 2000 and uh, it was a secondment for a year initially and I basically never went back after that so I joined it so much. So I've worked predominantly in Newcastle and I came to South Greenside about five or six years ago and then the Call of Speed project and came about and I met the criteria for this the, the project so I applied for the position and I was very fortunate to be interviewed and be successful in course.
0: And so we're going to be talking quite a lot um, today about some very similar named things. So we're going to be talking about Colo Speed which you've already touched on and speed is an acronym and um, and so then we've also got Colo Cohort and Colo Detect. So would you mind explaining a little bit about what each of those things are?
2: So the Colo speed project has a number of studies that sits underneath that. The very first one that came about was called Colo cohort. So cohort is really quite a big number study. So we're going to get 10,000 patients into one of the cohorts and 10,000 patients into another cohort. Cohort just means group so we're looking to develop a risk stratification tool so we can fine-tune colonoscopies for the future so colonoscopy you know it's quite an undertaking to have that particular procedure done so we want to try to target it to those patients who would require that procedure particularly so it's basically gathering lots of data sets data fields from people who are having a colonoscopy and looking at the, the results of the colonoscopy and, and comparing the two. So it's lots of different data sets, things like family history, um, comorbidities, current medications, blood test results, stool test results, etc. Gathering all of that data from 10,000 patients in order to develop this risk, risk stratification tool for the
1: future. Another important part of it is looking at the microbiome, uh, lots of people will be aware that the bugs that live in the gut are, are important, you'll have seen adverts for things to change the bugs in the gut, and we call this the microbiome, and the microbiome is a really important factor in many diseases and definitely within bowel cancer and colorectal cancer. Uh, so uh, one of the main elements of Colour Cohort is also to look at the microbiome. Uh, so we're looking at multiple factors as Ingrid just said around risk factors for bowel cancer. I think it's probably important to say at this point that that bowel cancer starts as pre-cancer and we call those polyps and it probably takes about 10 or 15 years for polyps to turn into actual cancer. So um, a lot of our work is actually around finding those and preventing people getting bowel cancer in the first place as Everybody will realise preventing cancer is much better than actually finding it and curing it. Uh, Both are clearly very important, but most of our work is in the finding it early or preventing it place.
0: And in terms of these studies, Colin, you do the procedures?
1: Yeah, so... Or your team does? Yeah, so... so, uh, there are a large number of colonoscopies here. I do quite a lot of colonoscopy. So colonoscopy is where you put a tube into the back end and have a look, look around the bowel. So most of our research is based around colonoscopy. That's where the, the colo comes from. We've actually got a whole load. We've got colo fit, we've got colo life, we've got colo spirit, we've got a whole load of colos. Um, I should have said probably when I introduced myself, even though I'm in in this trust I'm a Newcastle United fan and I'm desperate for us to find a Colachini who was a player who used to play for Newcastle so the team are there's a a reward out there for whoever can find a Colachini study that is
0: a that is (laughs) an award to win isn't it and and I guess Ingrid you help compile all the data and you put together the information that Colin and, and, and other members of the team gather when they're doing these procedures
2: so for colour cohort we are sponsor for that study so south Townside and Sunderland are sponsor for that study and um, we don't have such so 10,000 patients locally so what we do is we open that study out to other sites across the uk so for color cohort we've actually got 30 trusts across the uk at the moment so from as far afield field as glasgow down to our um, colleagues down in um, London area etc. So we've got 30 studies open to cohort and each of those we actually manage to make sure that they're doing our research to all of the rules and regulations that research um, follows. So we do sort of training with the delivery staff, there's an awful lot of training and ensuring that the, the data that they provide for us is in a certain quality. As well, as well as the quantity and, and ensuring that we get good quality data from each of our sites so that we are able to answer that research question effectively.
0: So it's just making sure that all that work isn't going to waste and everything's yeah. So it meets the standards that are required. Oh, a lot of
2: work, yeah. so, very high standards.
0: So
1: essentially, we, we lead lots of these studies. I mean, pretty much from our trust in partnership with Newcastle University, we lead the largest studies in this area in the world now, um, and have done for the last few years. We've probably recruited around 20,000 patients to our studies over the last few years, with, as Ingrid's just said, another 10,000 at least lined up, and another study just about to finish. So... Clearly the most important part of all this research is the benefit to our patients, um, it's actually in improving the outcomes from, for them, it's increasing knowledge for the wider community but I think it's also incredibly important reputationally for our, our organisation, we're seen as a world leader in this field and if people you know, from the United States, from Australia, from the Netherlands, all over the place will know of South Tyneside and Sunderland's work because of our research
0: and you've already mentioned you have uh, you followed Newcastle United and we should mention that the Sir Bobby Robson Foundation uh, supports the Colo Speed project, so I don't know whether you want to tell us a little bit more about how that
1: works yeah, uh, absolutely, so uh, the Sir Bobby Robson Foundation as people would know is a charity that he established uh, when he was alive, uh, he tragically died of uh, bowel cancer, I think it's about 14 years ago, I think it was 2009, uh, and that charity has continued and has grown into a really important Northeast charity uh, since his death. They fund a wide range of cancer research, and it, um, around three years ago, they funded the Color Speed work. They gave us around about a million pounds uh, to do that work. Uh, Colour speed is essentially the, the the infrastructure under which all the other research studies run so uh, there are many elements of it recruiting patients but also building a big digital platform that allows more recruitment on an ongoing basis so we're incredibly grateful to uh, the Bobby Robson Foundation who, who are our partners uh, and we're due to go to them in a few weeks time and present an update on our research to them.
0: Brilliant and that's obviously something very well known in the region also across the, the football and uh, community.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think Sir Bobby Robson is somebody who was respected. You know, uh, maybe slightly, slightly cautiously by Sunderland fans, <laughs> but was respected <laughs> He's throughout still the Northeast. Yes, and through, and through. through the throughout the football world, and uh, and huge amounts of really good uh, charity fundraising goes on throughout the whole of the Northeast. In fact, through the whole of the country, but predominantly in the Northeast. And I think that's really important because we do know that many of the national cancer charities which i'm not going to name and um, have a significant bias towards what we call the golden triangle london oxford and cambridge in terms of funding their research so i think it's really important that we have uh, strong funding in the northeast that actually keeps that money within the northeast and funds research in the northeast
0: and i guess when people say runners go and pass them in the great north run or they hear about fundraising event that's where your money's going and yeah. that's the difference it makes
1: yeah absolutely
0: fantastic uh, we've also touched on colo detect so would you be able to tell us a little bit more about what colo detect is all about
1: so um color detect is what we call a randomized controlled trial so that's where you actually um, randomised patients to have one thing or another done. It might be to have a drug or not a drug. It might be to have an operation or not an operation. In this case, everybody uh, who, who's coming for a colonoscopy is offered the chance to be part of this trial and they are randomised to having the, uh, the colonoscopy with or without this technology called GI Genius. And GI Genius is an artificial intelligence system Uh, what we do when we do colonoscopy is we look at the the lining of the bowel and see if there's abnormalities but we know that human eyes are flawed so the the gi genius system is an artificial intelligence detection system that that enhances images and looks to see things that we don't see so what it does is if it sees something that it thinks looks like one of these polyps that we talked about it puts a green box around them and encourages the endoscopist to have a good look it doesn't tell you what it is but it tells you to look at it more thoroughly so we believe that that will improve detection at at colonoscopy but we don't know that so what you do is you do a trial to see so uh, we require 2032 patients uh, from uh, 10 centers for this trial and we are at 2010 patients today on the 1st of march so we will complete that trial this week Uh, It's been a pretty significant undertaking, uh, undertaken by Ingrid and many others in our fantastic team. Been particularly challenging doing this trial as we've come out of the pandemic, because as we all know, the pandemic has changed lots of ways medicine's delivered, lots of our prioritization has gone towards things like flu and COVID. So actually getting this prioritized has been quite difficult. So it's been a fantastic job Um, It's probably been the hardest study we've ever delivered because of the pandemic, but to actually get here is incredibly satisfying. So we should have the the trial complete, as I say, this week, um, and it will then take us probably about three or four months to analyse the results. And we're hoping to have the results of that trial widely available by around June, July of this year.
0: And so we're recording this um, episode a little bit ahead of time, so by the time this goes out and people are to it, that work will already be beginning to pull out all information together. together. start the analysis. Yeah. The,
1: tra- the trial should be complete the, uh, round about the 1st of March mm-hmm. and we, will, um, we, we should have the results round about late spring, early summer of 2023.
0: What then happens to that research? What do you then do with it? What's the action at that point?
1: So um, we will publish it. Um, we are working with a commercial partner in this the people that make it so they will clearly be very very interested in, in the results and uh, we'll present it at medical meetings and we will you know if the trial demonstrates that the device works and I say that's the whole point in doing the research to find that out then we will um, we will disseminate that information and get adopted into practice there are also routes like NICE, National Institute of Healthcare and Clinical Excellence, uh, that endorse and support things. We've done previous research on something called the Endicuff Vision, and NICE endorsed and supported that to the extent the NHS England paid for rollout of it. So I think our research has really far-reaching uh, consequences because you're absolutely right. There's no point in doing research, showing something, and then people not adopting it. Uh, one of the hardest things to do is to get uh, doctors and other practitioners to change their practice based upon evidence. Um, so we develop the evidence, and then we try and get the message out there as to how to change your practice.
0: And when we're talking about AI and GI genius, it's a, it's a box. It looks a bit like, a uh, to, to a layperson like me, a box like a, a games console or a, like a DVD-sized DVD, a DVD sized box that goes on top of your kit. Yeah. So you wouldn't necessarily know anything as a patient, I don't think necessarily
1: so as a patient you wouldn't know any any difference. Any, any, any difference whatsoever mm. and i think it's also really important to say that the box is not making the decision the box is assisting the um the colonoscopist in making that decision. Artificial intelligence is now used very, very extensively within healthcare. If you take, you know, you could have a radiologist sat looking at x-rays all day. Towards the end of the day, they're bound to get tired. They may miss things. So they're actually using artificial intelligence now to say, look, have you checked that area properly? Uh, That that kind of thing. I mean, artificial intelligence is 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 in all of our lives. We may not know it. All that we do, phones, everything, artificial intelligence is there, finding out what we're doing and interpreting it. The interesting thing that computer-assisted diagnostics have been of huge interest for a long time. But historically, what we tried to do was teach machines what to do. Artificial intelligence works differently. It spots characteristics of things, the way the light looks in the bowel, is different on a normal bit and an abnormal bit, and it then teaches itself by doing things over and over and over and over and over again. We call it um, neural networking or, 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 or deep learning. That actually, and the other interesting thing about it is that it carries on. So even if you have something that's approved for use, it will carry on learning. So it should get. So it may be ninety nine percent accurate, but over the years it will go ninety nine point one, two, three, four, five, and get better at better at picking things up.
0: And when we talk about the green box, because I think I struggled when I was writing about this in my role, um, you have the screen that shows what your camera is picking up within your patient, yep. but then it literally draws a green box, Absolutely. a bright green box that highlights a little spot yep. that basically suggests that you go and investigate that a little bit more.
1: Yeah. If anybody's ever watched Sky Sports, as you might have guessed I would as a football <laughs> fan, you'll have the situation where they, they may have the... The football match up, and then one of the pundits draws a ring round a, a football and says, "You know, he's playing him offside." Look that that kind doing, of thing. Yeah. That's exactly what it's like. It draws a ring round it and draws your attention to it. The person undertaking the procedure then looks at it and says, "Yes, that is an abnormality," or "No, actually, that that's picked up something that's not an abnormality," and then makes a decision what to do with it.
0: And as part of this episode we'll share some images as well so that people can understand a little bit more about what that actually looks like to the to to anybody looking on um and so i guess my next question is what symptoms would a patient come to us that spark a a further investigation so what would people necessarily go to their doctors be worried about or what might be flagged up
2: so if you were to um see any blood in your stool you'd definitely go and Get that checked out any change to your normal bowel habits. So, we're all different, so it might be what, what's different for you as an individual. So, go more often or go less often. Um, sometimes, needing to strain after you've been to the loo, if you need to go to the loo again, losing weight unintentionally um, is something that you should get checked out. Pain in your abdomen or in your back passage. All signs and symptoms of anemia which is tiredness and breathlessness so if you've got any of those symptoms the first protocol would be to go to your gp to get those checked out
0: and it'd be quite hard for some people to take that action because they might be worried i mean your immediate kind of worry would be cancer but could it be other things as well and does it just really need Experts to
2: get involved. it is I mean, the most common reason for blood in the stool is is hemorrhoids or piles, so that's fairly common. So, you know, don't need to panic, but definitely do get it checked out. So, if you go to your GP, he or she will probably do some blood tests on you, might do a physical examination, etc. And if they felt it was necessary, might send you for a colonoscopy, which is either done here at South Timesire or at Sunderland, which are both fantastic units. They're both purpose built units, state of the art and the staff are absolutely brilliant here as well so absolutely get it checked
0: out and you deal with this all day every day so it's not out of the ordinary for you people might feel yeah. a little bit embarrassed but really yeah. everybody in this team and i know at Sutherland make everybody feel really welcome and relaxed and you know taken through the process really
1: well absolutely you know this is not something to be embarrassed about uh, it it is what we do and we're not embarrassed about it. we don't want you to be embarrassed by it the other important area to mention is screening um, the, the Ingrid has mentioned how people might present uh, with bowel cancer symptoms or, uh, but the other between the ages of uh, 56 and 74 we actually do population based screening so uh, any females listening to this will be familiar with uh, the breast screening program and the cervical screening program and um, there isn't there aren't any screening programs for cancer for men at the moment but bowel cancer is both men and women so essentially every two years uh, people are invited to uh, uh, to submit a stool sample, which is tested for blood. Uh, well, they actually don't. They, they, they dip a small stick in a stool sample, and it's tested for blood. And if that shows up as having blood, they come for a colonoscopy. So the two routes really to colonoscopy are through your GP if you have symptoms, or through the screening program. But it's really important that people um, are aware if they have symptoms in the bowel, but also that they take part in screening programs because screening programmes find cancer much earlier and save lives.
0: And when people do come to us for an investigation, what happens when they come through our door? So
2: if they've been referred for a colonoscopy, they may well have a pre-assessment if that's felt necessary. But um, there's a little bit of work to do before they actually get here, so they'll be um, asked to do sort of a low residue diet. Um, initially and then take sort of strong laxatives because what the colonoscopist wants to see is they want to see the the lining of the bowel and the best views are when that's nice and clear so they will be given some um, bowel preparation to take before they actually get here. And what's in a low residue diet? What can people look forward to? (laughs) It's sort of white bread and um, chicken eggs that type of thing so yeah, it's nothing with fiber or nuts or seeds or anything in it. so
1: it's, it's yeah it's lots of the things that you <laughs> shouldn't do that you encourage <laughs> you know when you're encouraged to eat more fiber and yeah, things it's things yeah. like brown bread and whatever it's important not to eat those in the yeah. build-up to a colonoscopy because we need the colon to be clear
0: and it just makes it a much better process for process yeah. that's probably the wrong way, but that procedure you
1: can't you can't do it if you can't see basically it's right. all it's all about it's all about having good views so uh, bowel preparation is a really important part what and so
0: if somebody's come for an endoscopy what happens following that procedure what happens next
1: so so when they come for the procedure and um, when they arrive they will be assessed by somebody just check other medical issues uh, etc um, and and um, there are really Two options for the procedure: you can either have it with or without sedation. Um, we used to give everybody sedation, but actually that balance has changed. And at least fifty percent of my patients don't have any sedation at all. Procedure can be a bit, a little bit uncomfortable, but it it's, it shouldn't be downright painful. Uh, but it's entirely patient choice. Um, the advantage of not having sedation is you can drive home, you can go back to work the next day, etc. If you've had sedation, you you can't drive or operate machinery or you know do anything, sign legal contracts or anything for about 24 hours and um, so um, so people come, they get assessed uh, and they go into the procedure room and colonoscopy generally lasts about 30 minutes and um, depends a little bit on how tricky it is to get round the bowel and obviously if you find things like polyps in the bowel we remove them at the colonoscopy and that clearly takes, takes longer um, and then afterwards people then uh, stay in the department for about an hour just to make sure that they're okay afterwards, that they're feeling fine, uh, and then go home. We we know at the time whether we found anything serious, so if somebody has a serious diagnosis such as cancer, we would normally tell them. Um, and if there's polyps, we have to actually send those off to the laboratory um, to be analysed, as we would samples from a cancer, so it can sometimes be a week or so before we have confirmation of what we did. But we give. pretty people a pretty clear picture before they leave of what the colonoscopy showed
0: and that must be quite upsetting and daunting for a patient sometimes when they're coming in thinking it could be bad news or other times yeah. they're worried about it and it actually turns out that they're in the clear
1: i think the the most important thing to mention is the overwhelming majority of people who have a colonoscopy do not have bowel cancer and um, the overwhelming majority even among screening at least 90 percent do not have bowel cancer and um, but clearly if they do it's very important that we manage that properly and we, we we tell people very gently that news and the other thing about bowel cancer is that most forms of bowel cancer are very treatable by surgery etc. So so, um, it's really important that we we're very clear with what's happening, give people a clear message and a clear plan. Uh, management of People who unfortunately do have bowel cancer is very, very good here. We have excellent surgeons, we have superb colorectal cancer specialist nurses. We get people through all the stages very, very quickly and operated on if that's the appropriate thing or other treatments very quickly. And
0: is uh, colonoscopy the kind of only way that it can be diagnosed? Or other conditions could be diagnosed?
1: So colonoscopy is what we would call the gold standard. Uh, investigation of the large bowel and we often do when I mentioned screening earlier I said that we often test the stool for blood if patients have symptoms we often do that now as well to actually see if there's blood in the stool because we know that if there's no blood in the stool the likelihood of anything serious being found at Connorsby is very small and we're actually leading some national work called ColoFit at the moment which is all around establishing the role of those tests um, in patients with symptoms Um, but in terms of actually looking at the bowel, colonoscopy is the best way. You can actually do CAT scanning to look at the bowel as well. What it does is it recreates an image of the bowel through the CT, the CAT scanner. and um, It can find things, but what it can't do clearly is, is take samples from them or remove the polyps that I've talked about. So it is used in, in, in diagnosis, but it, it's probably it, it's the second-choice test from colonoscopy you might use it in some people if you thought they had a particularly difficult colon that would be hard to get around or if somebody might not tolerate colonoscopy but colonoscopy done well by a good colonoscopy should not be a difficult procedure
0: and we've mentioned polyps a couple of times so I don't know whether to our listeners you want to describe what we mean when we say polyps
1: so if you take the bowel it's Mm. normally flat piece of ground, you know, like a flat piece of ground. Polyps are like little mushrooms that that grow in the bowel and over a long period of time those mushrooms can get bigger and bigger and turn into cancer. It's really important to say not all polyps turn into cancer but almost all cancers did start life as polyps. And that that process probably takes about 10 to 15 years. So you can imagine that there's actually quite a long window there to find those polyps and remove them. So we do research in terms of preventing them ever starting in the first place things like diet lifestyle obesity medication and then we do work on finding the polyps earlier to actually prevent them getting bigger because uh, if you remove them they're gone and then we do work on finding cancer earlier so so our, our work is at all stages of that process
0: and i know we're talking about uh, colorectal cancer month but what other conditions can be found when you're doing these checks does it help you Work out what else might be going on that could be causing these symptoms, or by chance come across other things that can help a patient manage their symptoms.
2: So sometimes they can um, they can show diverticulitis, which is a condition of the of the large bowel where there's kind of scarring, and that can cause some of the symptoms that were described earlier. And there's also autoimmune conditions as well, so colitis and Crohn's are two autoimmune conditions which can affect the large bowel. Right.
1: Yeah, so we do, we use it for pretty much diagnosing everything to do with bowel. Our particular <laughs> research interests are about bowel cancer, um, but it, it, it's the main investigation for other things, that, and the main ones are the ones that Ingrid's just mentioned.
0: Um, and. Because we're talking about colo-detect, and I know the study is um, it's still going through that phase where you're working out what you found, but are you able mm. to see what kind of benefits it's, or what difference you think it's made so far, or is it just too early to say?
1: So, I'm going to give the scientist's answer to that. Oh. I think we we'll have to wait and see. <laughs> if we knew that, So, I believe it will improve detection in the bowel. But if we knew that, we wouldn't do the trial. So uh, the trial is there to see whether it, it works or not. I think you, you you may have an opinion, but it's really important that you ab- approach it completely objectively. Um, so uh, um, I think it will increase detection, but the trial will show us whether it will or won't.
0: Kind of definitive answers come through that.
1: Yes. Great. Yeah.
0: Um, and GI Genius as well. They're a company that have created this piece of kit
1: so uh, it's actually manufactured by a company called medtronic which are a really large um, biomedical uh, company and um, they make ventilators so that they, they they um they contribute a significant amount during the pandemic they make um quite a number of pieces of medical equipment and this is this is one um device that they that they they make so medtronic
0: other the company, but GI genius is the piece of kit. Yes. Just to get that straight. Um, and we're also leaning on the bleeding on cooler detect. It's our study, we are in charge of it. Yeah. Um, so what does that involve as the kind of lead trust? And I know you've already touched on already what you do to help support those other trusts that work on our side, but how do you then pull all that information together? That sounds like quite a task.
2: So we have what's called a remote data capture platform that we use. So it's just basically a huge sort of database, and, and for detect ColoDete- that's called MACRO. So when a patient is recruited onto a study, they're given, uh, because of data protection, they're given a, a unique study ID, so it's pseudo-anonymised. So it might be ABC123, for example. So each site will then put the findings from patient ABC123 onto this database, we'll put on all of the data fields, and then we work with um, a clinical trials unit called ENWITH, and they've sort of developed this this software around the macro system um, in order for us to be able to analyse the data that's coming in. So it's all pseudo-anonymised. But as a a sponsor for a study, again, we have to make sure that all of our sites are doing things correctly, according to all of the rules and regulations. For which research has very many, and ensuring that the quality of data that's coming in is correct, so that the data is in the right format, so that we're able to do that analysis and, and get some good quality data at the end of it. Yeah.
0: And we previously talked to our uh, head of research, Claire Livingstone, and she right. talked a little bit about how trials work, and that was really yeah. useful, yep. um, but they're very they have to be very ethical, so we can't persuade somebody to take absolutely part, Absolutely not. Uh, we just have to invite them and give them all the information and they go away and have a think about things and you take it when they come back to us and say, actually, yeah. yeah. I, th-
1: I think it's also really important to say that research is absolutely a team sport, and um, that although a study like Colour detect is led by myself and my colleague at Newcastle University, Professor Linda Sharp, and um, there is an absolutely massive team of people involved in it, so Ingrid's mentioned... Uh, n- Endworth North Wales Clinical Trials Unit. They do a lot of the administration of the study for us. They do what we call the randomization that decides which arm you go in, that they will analyse the data for us. So that so we work with them, we work with other colleagues at Newcastle University who work on various elements of the study. And then we have the, um, the national delivery team, which is from South Tyneside and Sunderland Trust, which is people like Ingrid, uh, Alexander our research fellow Claire Livingston, you've mentioned so they coordinate it and then we have local delivery teams at around 10 sites and one of those sites is South Tyneside and Sunderland but we have around nine other sites uh, and that includes um, Newcastle hospitals they're one of our sites Northumbria is one of our sites uh, North Tees and Hartlepool is one of our sites and um, uh, as is James Cook in the northeast, and then we have another uh, a number of other sites throughout the country, which include uh, Wolverhampton, Kettering, Morecambe, Bolton, and uh, a site in uh, near Watford. Um, so, so it really absolutely is a team sport. Um, with local research nurses in each of those sites and local endoscopy nurses being very very important. But the most important people in all of our research are our patients. Uh, We cannot do research without our patients participating in research. Research is for patients to improve patient care but unless we have patients who are prepared to be part of research then we can't deliver it. I think research is incredibly important to NHS organisations. We know there is very very good evidence for this that research active organizations deliver better care that's been proven and um, so the fact that that research is going on um, means that patients are likely to get much better care given to them so we all benefit from doing it
0: and we can't move forward unless we know
1: absolutely. how things
0: can be made better absolutely
1: and but if there's one message i would want to give over and over again from this podcast it is our gratitude to our patients for being part of research we can't we can't do it without them
0: I'm going to ask you some more questions about how we deal with our patients. but
1: I will just give a special
0: shout out to Alexander who you mentioned there yes. uh, Alexander Seeger who is one of your team yeah. uh, really lovely yeah. uh, colleague of ours and also he appears in one of our other podcasts because he is also a reservist okay. so he is yeah. super busy um, so, but that's a really good listen and he speaks really well about how he manages that in addition to everything else he's got on yeah.
1: so, so Alexander saw the light and realised that it was better to come up and work in the northeast than work in Cambridge. <laughs> so he, 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 he came up and joined us because of our research. He contacted us and said, do you have research I can be part of? Uh, and he's done a brilliant job in, in delivering this study along with Ingrid and Jill Effard, our local research nurse here and others. Uh, the whole team you know i could shout about all of them Uh, amy burns uh, is another person who does a fantastic job in coordinating our research as does nathania bestwick our color speed coordinator but there's never been a more difficult time as i said earlier to deliver research than after the impact of covid uh, and they they do an absolutely brilliant job
0: I don't know everybody here at the team whenever I've come through the doors have been really lovely and welcoming and mm-hmm. you can tell it's a real kind of family feel and everybody yeah. keeps an eye out each other and I think our patients probably really pick that up because as an outsider you totally see those relationships and, and the work that you're all doing together.
1: One of the things I think we should really try and do in this trust is actually develop research in more areas. This gastroenterology is probably the area where we lead national research more than any other and um, the eye firm to do, do a lot of research as well in many others we deliver research but we don't lead it but actually I think it would be really good for us to try and lead research in more areas because I think once you develop that culture everybody is interested in learning more and doing better and and as I say I think it provides better care for patients. And Ingrid as a research nurse I guess your career took a different turn
0: that you didn't see coming mm-hmm. and you've really made it your own and, and helped make a difference that way mm-hmm. yeah and um, and so we, we touched on our patients there and we're really grateful for all the, the support they give us in putting together this and other trials um, but when they are invited to take part in this how do they react to that and what process do they go through
2: so we usually, we'll have a look to see if there's a, a patient that might be suitable for one of our studies. So for each of our studies, they have what's called inclusion and exclusion criteria. So what you want to make sure is that the patient is suitable for the particular piece of research that you want to be doing. So what we usually do is we'll, we'll contact the patient, we'll say, you know, you're coming in for a procedure with ourselves, and that is next week we're doing some research for people who's having that particular procedure. Is that something that you'd be willing to to know a little bit more about? And we'll leave it very open at that. And the patient will either say, gosh, I've got too much on. I need to get the dog looked after or whatever. And you say, no, that's absolutely fine. As long as you're aware, we're very research active trust. You maybe you you could help us at some point in the future. Or they could say, well, I could be interested. It just depends. What do I have to do? And sometimes people have a misconception about what part in research involves. They might think that they're coming backwards and forwards for the next two years for lots of visits to hospitals, etc. So we kind of need to work with them to dispel that myth and just sort of explain exactly what would be involved should they wish to participate. We'll give them a a verbal explanation of what's involved, but also back that up with a written explanation as well, called a participant information sheet, which is all ethically approved, etc. And even when they've done all of that, they're still able to say, actually, it's not for me, and that's absolutely fine. And we are sort of guided by our ethics committees about how long they should have that information for in order to make an informed decision
0: and I guess the brilliance of uh, this piece of work is actually a patient wouldn't know anything different when they're coming for the procedure because it's a piece of kit that's absolutely added it, to it, everything else
1: yeah it, it they would not know I mean unless they'd seen a colonoscue before and you knew knew that there's not normally a green box around things that you know they I think you'd have to have a really keen eye to spot yes, that though yes <laughs> they, they absolutely wouldn't know it certainly uh, does not do anything to make their procedure more difficult or worse in any way
0: and do they know after their procedure has been done that the GI genius has been up and running so or do you not tell them at that point
1: so in an ideal world we do something called a, a double blind randomized controlled trial that's where placebo controlled uh, that's where if you're taking a medication you neither you nor the person prescribing it to you knows whether you've had the drug or placebo clearly we can't do that here because blinding means you don't know you, we know whether the device is on or not so we don't specifically go and tell patients but if they ask us we we answer them because, because it's there so um, it's kind of a slight flaw in this kind of research that it, it's not the perfect research because you, but you can't possibly do it any other way. It's like surgery; you, you you can't be blinded to know whether you had an operation or not. You you, you kind of know whether you had one or not.
0: Yeah. and are you able to say whether we've been able to find things we wouldn't have found otherwise yet, or again, is that part and parcel of this
1: evaluation work? Yeah, that 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 that's. So what we're looking at as the main outcomes in this study. Is how many of these polyps we detected in the people without the device, and how many we detected it with. It, it, it's it's pretty much as simple as that. And if that number's bigger in the number with the device, that shows it's better than uh, detecting than the naked eye.
0: And what kind of feedback have we had from patients when they have taken part of the the been able to feedback about what how they felt about being part of it yeah.
1: most have been pleased to be part of it yeah people comment and say that they like to be part of research. patients like to be part of research and um, so i think generally ingrid may say more that they have a positive yeah, experience so
2: we, we do do um, what they call press which is a patient research um, experience surveys so we did do press sort of um for example in colo cohort before the pandemic and got really good positive feedback we did have to change colour cohorts slightly because of the pandemic about reducing face-to-face contact between delivery staff and patients. And we continue to do press afterwards. So um, again, we got some really, really positive feedback from that. And it's a bit, a little bit like friends and family um, surveys type of thing. And we do listen to what our patients say. The vast majority of people who take part in research find it a very positive experience.
0: That's really good to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, this is one use of AI having worked with it at close quarters how do you think it could be used in other ways or do you think there's other ways it could be developed as part of your work to make a difference
1: so I, I think there are lots of ways AI will be studied and used in medicine I think it will transform medicine like few other things have just from there are lots of different ways it's used for analysing data. I mentioned before, earlier that we're looking at the microbiome. Um, one of the things about the microbiome is there are there are millions and millions of different bugs in the gut. Analysing that data is pretty um, labour intensive. AI can do that much more quickly. So AI can be used to look at data. and um, It can be used for things like detection, for imaging. Uh, it, it's very good at picking up patterns. Uh, in 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 data or results so so ai will be without question um, a major um tool used by medicine in in the coming years without question i think a very important thing to say about our research is the research that we've done so far has made a has had a significant impact so i mentioned earlier that we've delivered some of the largest led some of the largest endoscopy trials in the world the impact of those has been significant the endocap vision device that we studied and um, we did the first really large trial showing its benefit that changed, informed NICE practice it changed NHS practice and use of those devices went up from around about 1500 a year in the UK to about 70,000 a year so our research has a real impact and um, we tend to publish our, jour- our, our research in really high quality journals and make sure people see it so whatever we find from Detect, we will make sure that the message gets out there and Hopefully it will show that this improves detection, but if it doesn't, that's equally important, because what you don't want to do is waste resources on things that, that don't help, if they don't help. And we have done negative studies before. We did one called Discard 2, which is around telling a difference between different types of polyps, and we did a large study, 2,000 patients, and we showed that it didn't work, so, so that is equally important. Uh, you don't want people believing something works if it doesn't.
0: That's really interesting. And... Um, I guess as we're talking about kind of cancer month what advice would you give to anybody about their diet or their their well-being or lifestyle that you think would really make a significant difference or you know you see patients who have the same uh, lifestyle that end up coming to us and we look at them is there any what advice would you give to to your friends and families I guess so
1: so so we know that there are some things that we can't change like family history and uh, male or female in terms of risk of bowel cancer but there are some very well-known preventable factors so um they are obesity. Obesity makes people far more likely to get um, colorectal cancer. We're doing some research, uh, well, we're hoping to do some research, which we've applied uh, for funding for called Cooler Life, which is about addressing obesity. Uh, we know that smoking increases your risk of bowel cancer. We know that alcohol increases your risk of bowel cancer. We know that not eating enough fruit and fiber increases your risk of bowel cancer. And we know that eating too much red and process meet increase your risk of bowel cancer so those are the main areas that that we can address and there's something called the world cancer research fund which has a really really good table of the things you can do to reduce your, your cancer risk and those things feature really highly highly on that good great that's a
0: Guidance for us all, I guess, um, and because we really want people to join our trust, uh, we're a great place to work and we want people to come and uh, play a part in um, our future and furthering things like our research, um, what difference have you seen your work make to our patients? When you sit back and, and look back, what, what kind of satisfaction do you get out of your role?
2: Well, I think Professor Reese has, has mentioned there about the results of the adenoma trial and adenoma trials, which introduced the, the use of the indoor cuff vision. Um, so that's sort of common practice now, and, and that's um, certainly helped outcomes from colonoscopies. Um, I think as a, a research active trust, it's very appealing, having worked in a different trust before I came here, so you have a little look at, w- at what they were doing, and um, had a, a chat with different you know, research colleagues, and um, it, it was very appealing to actually come here, to work here and be part of this, this trust. Um, Professor Rees just mentioned before, some of the work done around the microbiome it's not just sort of recognised locally, it's not recognised nationally, it's actually globally. So um, we got some really good feedback from uh, one of his colleagues who's actually based over in Australia about the the world class research that we're doing and that's just amazing to be part of that team that's doing this recognized world class research. It's amazing. So we're
0: not just making a difference to our patients, we make a difference to patients full stop.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think research means that we're trying to find the best care for patients and deliver it to them. I think that research also means that people up their game. So I think in a research active department like this, it makes people be up to date with what's newest, what's most current, so I think our patients get better care for that reason. I also think it's very, very important for recruitment and retention of staff, which is obviously crucial to delivering good care to patients. You know, we we have are known as one of the leading gastroenterology units in the country because of our research. We have no difficulty recruiting staff uh, and retaining staff. Um, we have people falling over themselves wanting to come and join us uh, so I think that that kind of reputation is really really important and our patients benefit from that because they then get those good high-quality staff uh, delivering care to them locally.
0: And it must just make a difference you knowing that you're helping to save lives and yep. will do for generations to come that must just be a huge sense of well-being and satisfaction in your roles.
1: Yeah I think the whole of medicine it should be an inquiring specialty you know don't just assume we we assumed years and years ago that whipping kids tonsils out was the right thing to do it actually wasn't you know there's very specific indications that you should do tonsillectomy for so really whatever we do we should always be questioning it and actually saying is this the right thing to do is it the best for our patients is it the best for their care and as is it cost effective is it the right use of resources so I think having that questioning mind is really really important and that's what all of our team have and I think that means that we we continue to deliver the best care for our patients
0: Colm, would you like to give the team a a shout out? Because I know that um, they work exceptionally hard and we wouldn't want to go without recognizing their efforts.
1: Yeah, so we work with an absolutely fantastic research team here. I mean, I can't name everybody because the whole of the endoscopy department are research uh, supportive and active, but Zoe Clapham, and diane the endoscopy managers are hugely supportive of research but within the actual research team themselves claire livingston is our manager uh, amy burns ingrid emerson jill Effrey, uh, sarah manning laura nielsen alexander sega all do a brilliant job in and um, supporting our our research there are others that i've forgotten to name nathania Beswick is one that what well, uh, comes to mind uh, Paula Madgwick, uh, I should mention Professor Linda Sharp, who's Professor of Cancer Epidemiology at Newcastle University and Professor Mark Hull from Leeds, who work with us very closely on um, the Kohle Speed program of Research. Uh, these are people who do a brilliant job, so we're really grateful to them.
0: And I guess they Pop. They form part of our bigger hospital network, which just makes everything run smoothly. Yeah. Um, all the people who work alongside outside in terms of admin yeah. and domestics and all sorts of stuff. We couldn't yeah. do, or you couldn't do, the work that you do without everybody playing their part.
1: Absolutely. Um, and probably just one maybe last thing to mention is that we, you know, as a result of our research, we've won multiple national awards. And I think that's great because that really affirms the I think that deserves a shout yeah, right? yeah. yeah. You know, we've won the... Health Service Journal Award, which is considered probably the leading uh, research award in the country. We've run the Royal College of Physicians Excellence in Patient Care Award, um, and we've won multiple awards for specific trials. We've probably won around 10 awards over the last five years, um, pretty much all of them nationally. And hopefully more to come. Hopefully more to come.
0: Sounds like a really good point to, to mm-hmm. close on. So thank you very much to Ingrid and to Professor Rees. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Okay, Thank you. thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of our People Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and check out our other stories. Hit subscribe to keep up with the latest and catch up with what we've been up to on our Twitter, Facebook and Instagram pages. Just search for our name.